adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu, you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 169 and 170, effectively the end of the movie, which begins with Helen and Enola getting to high ground, and end with the Mariners sailing out to sea alongside the movie credits. So this is the end of the movie. Exactly. The Mariner is standing at the tiller of his boat. He is... Scanning the water ahead of him, we get a quick cut of Gregor and then pop up to the top of a hill where Helen and Enola have found each other and they're going to watch the Mariner sail away. And really, the two of them is the entirety of the two minutes. It is. That's where like the interesting things happen. To touch on Gregor for a moment, he looks a little sad. Yeah. Standing there at the edge of the water watching the Mariner sail away. He looks just a little bit remorseful yeah well he's losing the opportunity to study the fish man some more that's true as much as he might respect the mariner as an accomplished sailor and an individual who can save people and all of that rigmarole Uh, he is also a discovery of the natural world that is out of the ordinary (laughs) i can appreciate that he hasn't had time to build a personal relationship with the mariner so he's not sad that the individual, the Mariner, as a personality is leaving. Yeah. He is sad at losing the opportunity for scientific discovery. <laughs> is there a way to unlock vestigial gills in regular people? Is it a skill that you can awaken or unlock? The answer is no, but I mean, he in doesn't In this know world, that. yeah, with gene editing, which they are very far from the ability to do, the answer could be yes. In this world... That takes us to Helen and Enola. Mm -hmm. They are frantically climbing up this hill. A mountain, I dare say. It's probably not really tall enough to be called a mountain, but it has the connotations of a mountain, like, steepness. They want you to believe that this is the highest point on dry land. Yeah, which is absolute crap, because we can see that it's not. Right. In the helicopter shot at the end of this clip, we're very plainly going to see that off to their left, there is higher ground. But- That's a minor thing, Mm. I guess. It doesn't feel that minor to me. I mean, this far into the movie, I feel like we put our dues in enough that we can still nitpick. If they hadn't put the plaque there, I wouldn't care. What? But the plaque specifically says the top of Mount Everest. Yeah. It's nowhere near the top. I have a screenshot right in front of me on this spot in 1953. Hillary and Norgay first set foot on the summit of Mount Everest. Uh-huh. Which I'm getting ahead of myself. At 26 seconds into this clip, we start the Ulysses cut portion of these two minutes. Everything in that first 25 seconds, all in the theatrical cut, everything after 56 seconds is theatrical cut. Everything in the middle involving this plaque specifically 
is bonus footage that the theatrical folks didn't get. And as Enola is stepping forward to get closer to the edge to watch the Mariner, her foot hits something. She realizes, oh, there's something metal here. And both she and Helen bend over, brush it off. And that's where we get to see the engraving that I just read. Similar to the D's being revealed to be the Exxon Valdez, this feels like it's supposed to be a big reveal that mm-hmm. everybody's like, yeah. I mean, we all know that Mount Everest is the highest peak in the highest mountain range on the planet. If there's going to be dry land, that's where it's going to be. It was very common sense to everybody, but it felt like it was supposed to be a reveal. As far as I've been able to research, there is not currently a plaque sitting at the summit of Everest. But granted, there's still like 480 some odd years until this movie is supposed to take place, according to our estimation. So there could be one put there in the future. But for now, there isn't. That makes sense that if this plaque exists in the future, that it got there in our future. Because climbing Mount Everest is a death-defying feat. It's incredibly difficult. You do not take anything up there that you don't absolutely need. And them taking up the supplies to install a plaque is ridiculous. It's a lot of wasted energy at the end of the day because a lot of the stuff you're bringing is building material tools and whatnot. You want to talk about Everest a bit? Yeah, let's talk about Everest a bit. According to my research, New Zealander Edmund Hillary, who was 33 at the time, and Tenzik Norgay, who was 39 at the time. Norgay was a Nepali Sherpa climber. But those two men reached the summit at 11.30 local time on the 29th of May in 1953. At the time, both men acknowledged that it was a team effort by the whole expedition, but Tenzig revealed a few years later that Hillary was technically the one to put his foot down on the summit first. So good guy Tenzig giving the credit to his buddy Hillary, I guess. I don't know. I mean, yeah, good for identifying, hey, this person was the first, but I'm much more on board with the idea. No, this was a group effort. If the whole team hadn't been there, Hillary wouldn't have been able to do it. Like, mm-hmm. I think the whole team as a collective should get that credit. <laughs> yeah, I can see why the set designers for this movie were like, okay, we're just going to go with Hillary and Norgay. It'll be easier just to put the two names on there instead of trying to list out the such and such expedition of 1953, blah, blah, blah. Oh, see, I would have rather them label it as like, give the expedition a name, give the team the name of the team leader who was in charge. Let's say, for example, Hillary was in charge. Call it the Hillary expedition. That means that there was a team, and if you were a part of the team, you are getting credit. I don't know much about the whole Sherpa business, but this is a way of life for a certain group of indigenous people around there, and us white people have gone in and been like, I will pay you money to take me up there. And they're like, okay, fine. Well, I'll do it. Yeah. From what I've seen, the Sherpas that regularly traffic people up and down the mountain their yearly income is higher than the Prime Minister of Nepal. My goodness. So it does feel a little iffy, culturally speaking. A little culturally exploitative? Yeah. Kind of like bungee jumping? Yeah. I'm torn about this too because humans of all sorts see a challenge, a highest peak, a deepest depth, and we want to conquer it. It's human nature. So of course, there's a highest peak in the world we're going to want to climb it. So I absolutely understand like the human nature of wanting to go up there, but then the paying for cultural appropriation 
just feels a little bit gross. According to my research, the Sherpa people that live in that area, they believe that Mount Everest and its different flanks are blessed with spiritual energy. And that when approaching Everest, you need to show a certain level of reverence when passing through the landscape. And on top of that, there's the belief that the karmic effects of one actions are magnified when you're on Everest. Oh, so impure thoughts are best avoided. If you are a foul mooded individual, you should avoid the sides of Everest. So in that regard, it makes sense that the mariner leaves. Because he is a foul-tempered individual. Yes, he is. So Everest in our day is a very interesting subject. It has a history of being conquered for glory, honor, and I think a certain level of sportsmanship. According to a quick Googling, over 4,000 people have reached the summit of Mount Everest since yeah. 1953. It started out with a certain level of positive human attribute. And now, I mean, it's just so overrun. It feels like a tourist attraction that used to be a special place. And now it's just overrun. It's covered with garbage. It's covered with bodies of people who haven't made it. And we can't go up and get them. People have died going up to retrieve bodies. It's just not possible. And the whole thing kind of makes me sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Wikipedia has a nice list of how many people in any given year have reached the summit. According to this table I'm looking at, in 2019, approximately 891 people got to the summit of Everest. With only 365 days in the year, that's two to three people a day. And there's a climbing season. You can't just go up there whenever you like. So all of those have to be compressed into an even narrower window. Uh Uh-huh. I've seen pictures of people having to wait in line Mm -hmm. at the summit to go up and then wait in line again to go down. Because coming down is particularly treacherous, the way you have to go. So people have to take it slowly. And so there is a backup to do so. And a couple notable features of the Everest climb that I have learned about in the past, for one is Green Boots, which was a climber who was suffering to the point of death and climbed into like a shallow cave and was still alive when people were walking past him, but they thought that he was okay. So there's a little bit of controversy about people walking past him and not helping him because if you stop and help somebody, it puts your life severely at risk. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that there is a social contract to help people along the way. His bright green boots were poking out of the cave and out of the snow for quite some time. And people will use it as kind of a marker that you are on the right path, that you are certain away up the mountain. And I believe that Green Boots is no longer visible. Oh. That he has probably been covered by snow. And his identity is sort of known, sort of unknown. There are some people who feel like they're sure about who he is. And then some people are like, no, we have no idea who he is. Mm. The idea, the very concept of Green Boots fascinates me and also makes me very very sad like this man right off the beaten path died in front of people and that is heartbreaking and it's heartbreaking to be the people who were nearby knowing that you couldn't do anything about it you could stop and help him but you would have died too so you don't do anything so you keep going and that's oh it's so sad a second notable feature 
on the way down, there is a section that's called Rainbow Valley. I believe you have to climb over some sort of crevasse and people fall to their deaths. And it's called Rainbow Valley because people wear, climbers wear brightly colored of all sorts of different colors, jackets. And so there's all sorts of bodies in various colored jackets in the crevasse. They will never be moved. I remember reading, and honestly, this was a while ago, I do not remember the source whatsoever. So gigantic grain of salt. That some of the families of loved ones are very much okay with their loved ones being up there and not never coming down. That it is now a burial site. You know, we give certain connotations to burial sites. There's a certain reverence, a certain sanctity about burial sites. Well, now that's the way we need to treat Everest. Mm. And there's something to be said about dying in a place that you worked so hard for. And there's something lovely about that. Yeah. This is going to sound terrible, but given the amount of human garbage that has been left oh, on the mountain. Horrible. And I don't mean bodies. I mean spent trash. tanks, trash, discarded tents. The natural beauty of Everest is being tainted by human interaction. And I've seen a couple of op-eds about closing Everest as a tourist destination, saying, okay, nobody can climb the mountain anymore. It is officially a sacred site. Stay off of it. Don't climb it. And while I understand where those people are coming from, saying, hey, let's not keep trucking trash up this mountain and dumping it up there as we fulfill our own egos to stand on top of the highest thing and take a selfie. As I mentioned earlier, the Sherpas that guide people up that mountain are making really good money for themselves, and they're able to support their families on that income. So I'm a little on the fence when it comes to shutting down Everest as a climbing destination. Because I don't want to take away that livelihood of these people. Yeah, I think that's the dilemma of many tourist attractions around the world. You want that tourist income, but the side effects mm -hmm. sometimes are too high of a cost. I've heard a story, again, grain of salt, I have no sources, but a story. The beach in the movie The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio became such a tourist destination that it was destroying the ecology and they had to shut the beach down. Mm. So you're no longer allowed to go to that beach. But that also, shutting that down also comes with the cost of losing tourist money. And for some places, that's a huge part of their economy. Yeah. Maybe there's a way to kind of have it both ways, that you shut down Everest for tourist traffic but you keep paying the Sherpas to go clean it up. Mm. And then once it's clean and, I don't know, deemed ready to be destroyed again, it can open back up to tourists. Yeah. I don't know. That sounds like a good project that could probably easily be funded by some of the billionaires we have on this planet. Right. It won't happen. <laughs> no. Diving back into the clip. As we're stepping away from the plaque stuff, we're looking at Helen and Enola. They're looking down at the water, and we get this shot behind them of them on the hill. The Mariner's boat is behind them on the water, and the shot is slowly pulling out. It's a helicopter shot. So we're going out and up. And something that the theatrical cut does that I really like is that the helicopter keeps going higher and higher and higher. Helen and Enola shrink smaller and smaller, and the boat is barely visible at one point. But as the land drops away... 
because the shot is so high up, the camera tilts up a little bit, so all you see is water. And you can compare that to how the Ulysses cut does it, where it pulls out for a little bit, but then it cuts back to the mariner on his boat. So you've got two different endings, where one is just, we're pulling away from dry land, we're pointing up to the water, fade to black, as opposed to we pull away from the land, cut down to the mariner, and then we see several different choppily used slow-mo shots as the credits roll over. And I'm not sure which I like better, because I think one says, okay, the story is over, we're leaving the people behind, where the Ulysses cut is like, the story of the mariner, this futuristic Ulysses, is just beginning. Ooh, okay, yeah, ooh, now I'm torn. At first, I was like, oh, the theatrical cut, that sounds amazing. I like the idea of returning to where we started on Waterworld. Because even though we found dry land, it's still a water world. Mm -hmm. Most people still live on water. The Mariner still lives on water. So I really like that idea. But you're right. Ending on the Mariner does say his story continues. His story is just beginning. I think that kind of makes sense because it wasn't done well. It does seem like that may have been a fan grabbing some footage and turning it into slow-mo. Mm-hmm. And then when they decided to actually produce the Ulysses cut as a real thing, they, like, didn't fix that. <laughs> they just took it as the fan had done it and been like, yeah, that's fine. Because it does feel, like, choppy and a little cheap. Yeah. That's what happens when you take regular footage and just slow it down into e slow-mo is that it gives that choppy, low frames per second look to it. Yes. As if... You're trying to run a high-demand video game on a low-end gaming rig. <laughs> That's why they make hugely expensive slow-mo cameras. Exactly. You get those phantom cameras in there that can shoot 40,000 frames per second. Yeah. going look beautiful. I mean, I'm sure that's a little excessive for a movie, but you get the idea. I have no idea. I have no context. Yeah. The Ulysses cut also changes when the end credits actually start to appear on screen. Okay. Directed by Kevin Reynolds shows up over Helen and Enola as we're pulling out on the shot where as the theatrical cut is like 10 seconds later it starts in. I don't think it's a big deal, but it is another difference. That one doesn't feel particularly meaningful to me. I have to wonder, going back to the idea that the Ulysses cut ending with the Mariner is someone expressing hope that this is not the real end to Waterworld stuff. Whoever put together this fan edit, and then that fan edit was picked up by whoever made the Blu-rays, I think it was Arrow or something like that. Anyway, I imagine that they spent all of this time and energy on this project, hoping that it would remind people of how much fun they had with Waterworld, and it would then inspire them to make more of it. I think that's a reasonable assumption. This world has a lot of lore and a lot of future that it could do. Mm -hmm. I am fascinated by the idea of both parties, the dry land and how they start their society and how they organize it, how they treat it, how it grows. And then the Mariner on his journeys around meeting good people, meeting bad people. We questioned the appropriateness of him making the decision, I think, a way to settle that questioning that we have had is to let us see it. Let us see that there are clearly people bad enough 
who should not be told about dry land Mm -hmm. and that there are people clearly good enough. And maybe the interesting part is going to be the people in the middle who through some adventure or interaction need to prove themselves. Right. In this hypothetical sequel that we're thinking up right now, would it follow the Mariner in the same way that this movie followed the Mariner? Or would you rather have it follow the Helen 2.0 character? I think I'd rather it follow the Mariner. I think it's more interesting how he's going to go about meeting people, judging people, telling people. He's going to be rebuffed. He's going to find people who he deems good people. He's going to tell them and they're not going to believe him. He's going to be ridiculed for such a claim. Mm Mm-hmm. But I like the idea of him getting through to people and learning and growing more about himself in the process. And then the end of the movie is him bringing a group of people back. And similar to this movie, like the last few minutes are them being welcomed by Helen and her society. We see growth. We see new buildings. We see babies. We see progress. Jumping off of that idea. If they were to make a quarter century later sequel, which instead of doing remakes, we like to do late stage sequels, but I would like to see a water world where, you know, Kevin Costner is back as the Mariner and he is old now. Yeah. And he has been sending people to dry land. And so you're able to cut between the Mariner on his boat and Helen, who is now in charge of Dryland, and there is this community, and they have their built-up huts and a little society going with farms and trade and whatnot, and there is some existential threat to Dryland. Someone bad has found out about Dryland, either through someone who was on Dryland and they got disgruntled with the way things were run, and so they escaped... Escaped is an odd word to use. <laughs> Ran away. Ran away is probably better. I don't want Dryland to be a, okay, you're here, you can never leave right. type of situation. But have a character who is disgruntled enough to betray the location of Dryland to bad people. Right. I think the slavers are an untapped villainy. Mm. We didn't even see them. We saw dead them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they were spoken of a little bit, but it leaves wide open this idea of another villainous faction that is arguably more scary I think than the, the slavers, smokers. The slavers are an excellent villain for this hypothetical quarter century later sequel because yeah. they're always trying to find people to take away. And so if you've got all of these good industrious hardworking people mm-hmm. on dryland somewhere well why wouldn't you just take them or better yet just take dryland for yourself so you can have this whole new faction to deal with and have a natural escalation of the threat by just bringing in a new group you don't have to figure out okay well the deacon's dead nord's dead most of the smokers on the exxon valdez are dead even some of those that escaped probably died soon after like we can't contrive some way to bring the smokers back let's just have it be the slavers i like that i really do yeah me too and that's a movie that i would go see certainly now that we've watched Waterworld two minutes at a time i would definitely go see a sequel even if it were horrible but outside of that context that sounds like an interesting story yeah 
and I, mean, I love the idea of bringing back actors who are now quite a bit older playing the parts when they were younger. Yeah. I really like that. That's something that I would have liked for Mad Max. Bring Mel Gibson back as an old man. Cast him as old Max. Mm -hmm. Let's see what old Max's life is like. Hugh Jackman gave us very high expectations yeah. for old man action hero he stories. He really did. He really <laughs> did. And then there's Harrison Ford, who is shooting Indiana Jones 5 right now-ish, and I'm not sure I buy it. One old Indiana Jones, I think, was fine. It was, it was a fine movie. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It was fine. But doing it again, I don't know. It's a little much. It's a little much. And he's, I'm sorry, he's no Hugh Jackman. He did not age with the same like rugged handsomeness as Hugh Jackman and Pierce Brosnan. Oh, Pierce Brosnan! Oh is no, oh, nobody very can beat him. As an old man. If they, okay, if they did an old an old James Bond with Pierce Brosnan, mm. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> as far as bringing actors back, we've lost Artie Call, we've lost Gregor's actor. Mm -hmm. But we still have Gene Triplehorn. We still have Tina Majorino. I would like to see Gene Triplehorn as this more... Matriarch. Matriarch. Uh, more matronly character filling the role of the Atoll elders. But then I would also love to see Tina Majorino taking an active hand in the day-to-day -day stuff of Dryland. Being a in-amongst-the-people character. Having a character to begin with. Uh, yes, instead Be, of being an object. Being more than just a girl with a tattoo on her back. I would yeah. love to see her blossoming from this child into a woman of ability and renown amongst the people of Dryland. Yeah, I really like that our assumption and our imaginings is that Helen is going to be the leader, not the enforcer. <laughs> Helen is going to be the leader of this new society. And that leads to... Enola is going to be the next leader. When mm -hmm. Helen retires, dies, whatever, it's going to be Enola. So I love the idea of seeing her as a young woman coming into her own leadership abilities and showing that she is going to be a great leader when Helen is done being leader. Mm. And just because how much time has passed, it's not like she's going to be someone in her late teens. Like, she'll be a full-fledged adult. Yes. And... You could play that off as her in the beginning stages of taking on the responsibility of being the proper leader. And maybe there's someone else on dry land that is challenging her authority. So you could have a B story of her trying to rally the people of dry land to her side versus this other side. And then the, the slavers come in during that. Yeah. To represent an existential threat. So you've got the mariner trying to deal with the slavers out on the water and then that conflict comes to Dryland to interrupt the conflict that's already there. There's oh, there's yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, it's fertile ground. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have been talking about this movie for eighty-four episodes because this is episode eighty-five. I feel like we need to wrap up our final thoughts about this movie and really consider it as a whole. Okay, I've been thinking a lot about this. Because, of course, I knew this conversation was coming. I am still very, very torn about this movie. Mm -hmm. When it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's bad. And I'm still boggled by the situation that gave us a Ulysses cut. 
people saw the different versions of the movie that were cut to be appropriate for their different showing locations and said, nope, we're going to do it our way. And they did the Ulysses cut. The Ulysses cut is not superior. It is different, but it is not superior. Right. They didn't take out any of the fluff that wasn't needed, which left us with a three-hour movie. This movie should not be three hours. It should be very tops two hours. An hour 45 to two-hour movie. Right. This is not an epic. You can compare Waterworld to different grades of milk. You've got whole milk. You've got skim milk. You've got fat-free, 2%, 1%, whatever. The theatrical cut is skim milk. They took it, they skimmed a bunch off of it, threw it in the fridge, which is analogous to theaters. The Ulysses cut is whole milk. They kept everything in. The ideal milk situation <laughs> for Waterworld would be a 1% or 2% milk. Yeah. Where they left a little bit of that fat in there. They took most of it out because there is, as you said, a lot of fluff in this cut of the movie. Yes. So what you want is a distilled version of Waterworld, where the good stuff from the Ulysses cut is in there, the useless stuff is taken out. I want more stuff than was in the theatrical, but then again, maybe just different stuff than was in the theatrical. Yeah, not everything that was put back for the Ulysses cut should have been put back. Not all of it was, like, good or necessary. Some of it was great, though. So... It makes me want to be the editing sort and go do it myself. Yeah. I appreciate us watching the Ulysses cut. I do not believe that we have made more work for ourselves or been overly analytical by choosing to do this three-hour cut. I think we got a lot out of it by doing it this way. And I'm not upset that we spent all of this time looking at it. And I'm glad we did it. I agree. I am also not upset that we spent so much time doing this. I am glad that we chose the three-hour cut. It opened my eyes to what fans can do. So from what I'm hearing, given the option, you would rather watch the theatrical cut. You would not willingly subject yourself on a whim to three hours of Waterworld. Like if you were Over bored. Over to rewatch it? Yeah. Hmm. See, that's tough. That's really tough. I, ooh. Because now I know that there's good stuff in the three-hour cut. I'm not sure I can answer that. I really just want someone to recut this movie <laughs> into a two-hour cut that's just better. Yeah. If I were the sort of person that would re-watch movies, there was a whole summer where you were just watching Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, time after time after time. Yep. I'm not that kind of person. I will watch something and then I will never watch it again for <laughs> years. If I was sitting around and the only thing I had to put on was Waterworld and I had the choice between the two or three hour cut, I would probably put on the three hour cut and then do something else while it's running because that's just the person that I am. But as far as the movie as a whole is concerned, this project has not diminished my love for Waterworld. I have a lot of fun every time I watch this movie. And one of the ways that I'm able to reconcile what I'm watching on screen is that I look at it as Helen's story and the Mariner is just the POV character and it's okay for us to hate the Mariner for the dumb stuff that he does, the awful ways that he treats people. 
And at the end of the day, I have a good time every time this movie is on. I'm glad that picking it apart has not diminished that for you. That is absolutely a danger in picking apart movies is that you ruin the movie for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that that has not happened. I am not such an ardent lover of this movie. I probably won't watch it again anytime soon. Not that I'll never watch the movie again, but not anytime soon. Yeah, we're overdue for a break from Waterworld content. Here in recording time, it's summer, so I'm just going to keep watching Mamma Mia over and over again. Exactly. <laughs> Besides, sooner or later, we're going to be living in Waterworld, so... Yeah, we won't have to watch it anymore. We can just look out our window. Exactly. Well, listeners, that pretty much brings us to the end of this season. Now, you may be thinking to yourselves, wait a second, 170 minutes? That's not three hours. There's a good 10 minutes left. And I would say, yes, you are correct. Our last three episodes of this season are a bit different and very special. Starting next week, we will be taking a look at the 1991 Peter Rader script for Waterworld. It will be unlike anything we've ever done before, and I sincerely hope that you enjoyed listening to it. So until next time, I've been Rick. I've been Julia. And this has been Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 85. We'll see you next time.